who do not know him or love him. Let's look at the first three verses. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. See, the crowds do not know him or love him. They may follow him at a distance. They're coming from all around, from Jerusalem, Idumea, Galilee, Jordan, Tyre, Sidon. It's listing all the regions around Jerusalem, all of the regions around old Israel, saying that they are coming from that great distance to come to Jesus. So they may be following him in some sense. They may know who he is. They may be around him. But they do so at a distance, relationally. They live in the surrounding areas. They come from that place to check on what Jesus is doing. He's functionally for them a celebrity. I have to admit, I'm not uh, much for celebrity worship. I find it really hard to care what celebrities are doing. I usually just don't pay any attention. But there are times when I'm in the self-checkout line at Walmart, which is wrapped around like three different sections. You're in the makeup section. You're waiting for the people who don't work full-time as checkers at Walmart to check out all their items. They've got to go through everything. So it takes some time. While I'm there, while I'm killing that five to ten minutes, I'll usually pass the time by reading the headlines of the, the celebrity gossip magazines. That's about as invested as I get in celebrity worship. And the ones I like aren't the ones that are pretty normal. You know, Ben Affleck got a new tattoo. This person's dating this person. Those are fine. I'll read them because there's nothing else to read. But the ones I really enjoy are the ones that are really crazy. They're, they're in all caps. They're aliens came down and met with John Travolta. Kobe Bryant's still alive, and he's playing for the Lakers tonight. It's things like that. Those are the ones I really enjoy listening to and reading. And the relationship that I have with that kind of celebrity, the relationship that I have with that kind of headline, is roughly the same thing that the, that the crowds had as they were following Jesus. They followed him from a distance. They weren't invested. They didn't care. They weren't on board with everything, but it was something for them to talk about. He may even have some kind of benefit that he could give them, but they followed him from a distance. But they're not his followers. They follow him for a short time, for a short distance. They come to visit him, but they're not truly following Jesus. Notice, this is a setup for the rest of this chapter. These next several chapters, Jesus is going to start teaching these crowds. He's going to start speaking to them and performing miracles in front of them. And notice what happens to them. They leave. This is an introduction to these next few sections, saying that there are great crowds who are following him, but there are also disciples who are with him. The crowds came and followed at a distance, but they weren't truly his followers. When Christ starts making demands of these crowds, when he starts pointing out their sins, and saying specific things about how they should stop, how they should repent, in addition to healing them, see what happens. They leave. They bail. They don't stick around because they're not truly his followers. They may even be close to Jesus, both physically and maybe for a time even relationally. They're close enough to touch him. They're in direct proximity to Christ, verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. They were close enough to reach out and grab him. They were close enough to see who he was, to hear what he said. And there were enough of them to be able to crush him. They knew whether he was the real deal or not because they were right up close and personal with him. 
They think you have to be right up next to him to get his benefits. So they're all up in Jesus' business. They're right there. They're close to him. But they don't love him. They're willing to crush him. In verse 9. They had to get a boat because of the crowd, lest they crush him. They're not following him. They're bull rushing him. They have no care for who he is. They have no desire to help him. They have no desire to serve him. They want what he can give them. And they want it so bad that they'll kill him for it. They're willing to crush him. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see, Jesus would be crushed. And he would be crushed for the crowds. But he would be crushed on the Father's terms, not on theirs. He would be crushed sacrificially, laying down his own life, no one taking it from him. The crowds were willing to crush him to get what they desired. And whether they knew it or not, they were on to something. See, Jesus is crushed. He had to be crushed. If he were not crushed, the crowds could not be healed. But they're not the ones who do it. He doesn't. He lays down his own life. By the sovereign plan of God in the fullness of time, Christ would be crushed and sacrificed. That all who come to him can press into him and in him find life rather than the death that they deserve. They can find healing rather than the suffering that they should be experiencing. So, but for this crowd, they, they may be close to him, but they don't love him. They may even know what he can do for them. Verse 10. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. They pressed close to him because of what he can do for them. He heals wherever he goes. So they're diving over themselves just to touch him. Just to get a, a taste. Just to be around him. Just to be in proximity. They know what he can do for them, but they don't ask what they can do for him. If they had actually loved him, if they had followed him and served him, they might see the fullness of who he was. They might experience the richness of his grace and mercy. They might have found that his way for them to follow is exactly what they were designed for. They approach Christ and his calling in much the same way that we often do. See, we want the benefits of having a relationship with Christ without any of the sacrifice, without counting any of the costs. We want the rewards without any of the service. But when you love something, you serve it. You help it. You don't crush it. You don't kill it. You don't try to control it for your own ends. See, if, if they had loved Christ, if they had experienced his grace, his mercy, then in response to that grace and mercy, they would have served the one who extended that grace and mercy to them. That's the way of Christ for those who love him. See, the crowds didn't truly know him, and so they did not love him. That's the first relationship that we can see with Christ in this passage. The second is of the demons who know him, but do not love him. The crowds did not know Jesus or love him. The demons know him, but they do not love him. Verses 11 and 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. You see, the demons may know who he is. They know he's the Son of God. They know that better. They know that more clearly than the, than the crowds do. Maybe even better than we do. They declare it in fear, in the hopes that they might out him, that it's going to mess him up. It's going to mess up his schedule. It's going to cause some problems for Jesus if they start telling everybody who he is. They know who he is, 
but they don't worship him. They don't serve him. They don't have saving knowledge of him. They don't have a changed life as a result of that knowledge. So what good is that knowledge to them? It's useless. Knowing him without loving him does no one any good. James 2, verses 19 and 20, which I think will be on the screen behind me. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You see, a hollow belief, a mere mental assent to the truth of Scripture, saying, yes, those things are true, but it has no effect on me. I don't change because of that truth. A knowledge without actual saving faith, actual saving repentance, actual love and service of Christ, Scripture calls that useless. It's useless. It does no good to the demons, and it does no good to you. If you know him but do not love him, you're no better off than the crowds are. See, there are several passages in Scripture which really scare me. There's a few of them. This is one of them. I'm, I'm not a genius. I'm not brilliant. But I'm not dumb. I know things. I know the Bible. I've got a master's degree in it. I'm working on a doctorate in it. I can know all those things. But the demons know all those things. If it doesn't result in a changed life, if it doesn't result in repentance and faith, my knowledge is useless. And that can be scary. That's not a warning against learning. The greater the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in Him. We should study. We should know. But that knowledge can't merely be knowledge. It has to result in love. It has to end in love. That the fact that you can know fully and truly exactly who Christ is, just as the demons did, you can know what that means. But that can have no bearing on whether you are actually in Christ or not. Whether you actually have faith and belief or not. Whether you actually repent or not. That's a terrifying concept. So for us in this room, we have to honestly and often evaluate our own lives. We have to look ourselves in the mirror honestly and openly and think and ask, do I have faith in this? Or do I just believe it's true? Am I changed because it's true? Or is it just like trivia to me? Is it just a, a fact that I can spout out? Does my faith result in repentance? Does my faith result in a changed life? Or am I roughly the same as I would be if I were a Christian? Do I not only know who he is, but do I worship him? Am I spending my life, am I pouring myself out in worship and service of him? The answers to those questions They'll tell us a lot about where we are spiritually And we have to ask them Because it is possible To know him But not love him It's possible to know who he is But not worship him Don't settle for knowing who he is Without loving him It's useless to you Do that which is useful Both know him and love him See the demons They listen to him Verse 12. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. They listened. They do what they're told to do. They're under his power. He's the God of the universe. So they're powerless to defy the Son of God, whom they know. 
They listen to him, but they don't serve him. Doing as he commands because you're helpless to do otherwise and serving him are not quite the same things. They're not equal. The demons listen to him. They do as they're told, but they don't serve him willingly. They don't serve him gladly. They don't serve him joyfully. They're not captured by his beauty and therefore following his perfect plan for all things. You see, they may listen to him, but they do not serve him. They may know who he is, but they don't love him. The third possible relationship we can see to Christ in this passage this morning is that of the disciples, the one that we want to have. Spoiler alert. The disciples know him and love him. Whereas the crowds did not know him or love him, the demons know him but do not love him. The disciples both know him and love him. Christ embraces them. Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. See, the crowds, they followed at a distance. They pressed near to the point of crushing him. The demons, they trembled before him. They were rebuked. But the disciples, they're embraced by Christ. He calls them. He went up on the mountain and called to him. He calls them to himself. The crowds are begging. They're pressing into him. And they can't get there. The demons are shuddering before him. There's no intimacy there. But his disciples, they're called by him. They're called up to him. He embraces them. The call is a command. Yes, he calls them. He says, come here. Christ's creatures are helpless to disobey his command, just as the demons were. But this is a soft and tender command. It's for the good of the one who is called. It's for the glory of the one who calls them. He calls his disciples to himself because he desires them. So in verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired called them because he wanted them. He desired them. He called those he desired. The God of the universe has come to earth in the flesh to accomplish his will, to perform his works, and he desires people just like these 12 dudes to come to him. These 12 nobodies. These 12 random men in Israel in the first century. He calls to him those he desires. In my preaching at this church, you're going to hear a lot about how big God is, about how he's not the same as you. That if, if we're talking about in reality, if we're wanting to be serious, there are two kinds of beings in the universe. There is creature and there is creator. There's only one of those. Everything else is created. Everything else is a creature. He is not like you. You'll hear over and over that he is the creator, you are the creature. You'll hear about his being, his attributes, his transcendence. But in the midst of all that talk about how big he is, about how lofty he is, about how he is not like you, about how high, about how holy, about how separate he is, how different he is, don't forget that that same God who is all those things, who is that big and bigger, he has a burning desire to call to himself sinners like you and like me to redeem them. See, Christ calls the disciples because he desires them. 
He embraces them. He brings them to himself. That same God who is that big still desires and wants sinners as his disciples. He wants people to follow him. And those disciples, once they are called to him, once they come to him, whom he desires, they came to him. The end of verse 13. And those disciples serve Christ. Once you are called, once you come, then the disciples in turn serve him. They respond to him. Out of his calling up into himself, out of his initiation, they serve him. They respond in service. They respond to him because he called them. He called to himself those he desired. They came. Because he called, they responded. They heeded that call. They obeyed that call. That's the response. That's it. That's the fullness of what you were asked to do is to heed the call and respond. And once they respond, they are with him. Verse 14, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. See, once these uh, disciples have responded to him, once they've come to him as a first step, now they can be with him. Now they can have a true relationship with him. Now they can actually have an intimate knowledge and friendship with the one who is Christ. They can know him not from a distance like the crowds do, but up close and personal, day in, day out. They can know him not only intellectually like the demons do, but in a close relationship with him that's characterized by mutual love and affection. From the day that they respond forward, he appointed these 12 so that they would just be with him. An intimate presence with the Son of God is what they were called to. It's the same thing you were called to. You have that same option. No Christ isn't here on earth in the flesh as he once was. It's better. Having accomplished all he was sent to do, he's now taking a seat at the right hand of the Father. And until he returns, but because of the work he has finished, you can now be with him in a very real sense. You can continue with him in a more real sense for all eternity. You have the Spirit now, his helper now, to be with you, to be with him in a very real and intimate, close relationship with the God of the universe. He calls disciples to himself just that they might be with him. Before we get to what the disciples do, notice, first of all, that the first calling of every disciple, the first calling of everyone who responds to Christ, is to follow him in close personal proximity. That's it. That's step one. You respond to God, you follow him in close personal proximity. You follow Christ. That's it. Before you get to a list of do's and don'ts, before you get to exactly how you serve, before you get to all the things that you're told to do, all the commands you have to follow, which are real, the first thing is just to be with him. To love him. To know him. To be known by him. I want the members of this church to serve Christ like disciples. But more than that, I want you to be with Christ like disciples. I want you to know him like disciples. To spend out your days intimately knowing and being with the God of the That's my first and primary prayer for everyone in this room. Let's start there. 
And once we get there, then we can get to what he's called his disciples to do. Because the disciples are called to do things. They are sent by him. In verse 14 and 15. So they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. See, once the disciples joined him, he sends them out to preach and to have spiritual authority. Now, if you're paying attention, there's an obvious question here, right? Didn't he just say that he called them to him to be with him? Why is he now, the first thing he's doing is sending them out? I thought they were called to him. I thought they were called to be with him. How can both of those things be true? That he calls them to be with him and he also sends them out. They can be true because just as God is with them and they go, by their going, they continue and grow in relationship with him. They follow his commands, and he is with them as they go. When you're called as a disciple, you are called not as an end in and of yourself, but as a means towards other ends. You're a disciple ultimately to bring glory to God. You're a disciple in an earthly sense ultimately to make disciples. You are called to spread his name, to spread his renown, to spread the worship of him throughout the entire world. You make disciples. That's what you do. And as you go making disciples, he is with you. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, verses you probably know very well, but should be on the uh, screen behind me. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the final command he gave to his disciples, these twelve, whom he calls now and sends finally and ultimately before he ascends. He says, go. And as you go, as you are making disciples, as you are baptizing and teaching and preaching, I'm with you. Always. To the end of the age. In every respect. He's with them. So he's speaking to the disciples after the resurrection, telling them that they will go and they're going to replicate themselves in others. They're going to create more disciples. You see, disciples, once they're called, once they're with him, they are sent by him. And they're known by him. Verses 16 through 18. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. See, the disciples are known by him. They don't just know him. He knows them. We know these guys' names. There's no way we would have apart from Christ. But Christ knew their names as well. He chose them to himself, and he knew them personally, truly, he knew them intimately. They were both fully known and fully loved. So in response, they are to fully know and fully love. They're called to him. Let me briefly just point out that there are 12 men chosen to be his disciples and apostles. If you are familiar with your Bible, you'll remember that there were 12 tribes in Israel. You see, the, the people of God in the Old Testament were made up of 12 tribes 
who are supposed to follow God's commands and spread his name and his glory among the nations around them by the way that they live their lives, holy as he is holy. And now, in the New Testament, you have Christ calling to himself a new group of twelve who will follow him and enact his commands, who will spread his name, spread his glory among the nations and around the whole world by preaching his person, his word, and living lives in a covenant community, the church. You see, just as in the Old Testament, there was the nation of Israel, which were the people of God. In the New Testament, we get the church, who are the people of God. Represented, first and foremost, by Christ calling out the twelve as a new representation of the twelve tribes of Israel to make his church. Old Testament Israel, New Testament church. There's both continuity between those things and discontinuity. The church is not Israel. It doesn't fully replace Israel. But in many ways it does. Christ is calling a church, a new church, a new gathering, a new group of people. And he's calling back to God's pattern and calling out people for his purposes throughout the entire history of the human race. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a member of the new covenant community, the new people of God, the true Israel, Christ's church. And through that community, through that church, what you are to do is to spread his name and spread his renown through all the world. There's way more here to unpack that I just don't have time for. We'll get to someday. But I want you to see the connection. Both that continuity and the discontinuity between the tribes of Israel as the people of God who were to live a certain way and do certain things in the Old Testament and the disciples of Christ as the new people of God, his church, who are to live a certain way and do certain things from the New Testament forward. When Christ calls out the disciples, he is calling out his church in a new twelve to form a new community. And these people who are known by him, these 12 whose names we still know, they're not only known by him, they are loved by him, even though they might betray him. Verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, if you're just reading Mark for the first time, that's like a big spoiler, right? We're only in chapter 3. We've got 16 more chapters of this. And all of a sudden, Mark's saying, hey, there's this one guy who's going to betray him. It's foreshadowing exactly what's going to happen. And if you're reading this for the first time, you've got to be pretty shocked, right? Jesus, the Son of God, who knows all things, called one to himself whom he desired, and one of those twelve betrayed him. Christ knew exactly what was going to happen. He had a plan the entire time. He was not shocked by Jesus' betrayal, and he called him to himself all the same. He was with Christ. He got to see him up close and personal. He got to know him. He got to be loved by him. And yet he betrayed him. Christ loves his disciples, even though they really mess up. See, Christ called to himself a people that he walked with and loved in spite of their shortcomings. We're going to see over and over throughout the book of Mark, as we continue in this series from this day forward, exactly how human the disciples are exactly how often they mess up they are absolutely normal men who make absolutely normal mistakes 
over and over and over again. And yet Christ knew all of that, and he still called him. Christ knew all of that, and this is still his plan, to spread his name throughout the whole world. Christ knew all of that, and these are the new twelve. These are the first fruits of the new community. These are his church. He still called them. He knew one would betray him, and yet he still called him. So if you're a disciple of Christ, you shouldn't be shocked by your screw-ups. You shouldn't be shocked by your failures. You shouldn't be shocked every time you really mess up. Because you are one in a long line of mess-ups. A long line of black sheep leading back to the beginning. But if you're a disciple, you're a disciple. You're one who both knows him and loves him. And he knows and loves you even more fully than you do. Even more truly than you do. There's a popular pastor by the name of Tim Keller. And he uh, says that what every person is wanting, what every person desires, is to be fully known and fully loved. And we can't find that here. Your spouse is as close as it gets, and 50% of marriage is in the divorce. Every one of us fears a little bit, deep down, that the more we are known, the less we'll be loved. In order for people to love us, they must not be able to know us. But with Christ, the disciples whom he calls to himself, he both fully knows and fully loves them. And we, as his disciples, are to respond by both knowing and loving him. Today, we have seen three different relationships that you can have with Christ. You may be like the crowds who do not really know him or love him. You might be right now following him at a distance, but you're not a true follower. You're close to him, but you don't love him. You know what he can do for you, but you've never thought about how you might be able to serve him. Or maybe you're like the demons, who know who he is, but don't love him. You know who he is with your head, but you don't worship him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You listen to him because you have to, because you're forced to, because you're the creature and he's the creator. But you don't serve him willingly. You don't serve him out of love for him. But it's my prayer today that if you are in one of those two groups, that today would be the day that you become a disciple. Today would be the day that you are one who knows him and loves him. One who's embraced by him. One who's both called and desired by him. And because of that embrace, because of that call, because of that desire, now you serve him. You respond to his voice. You respond to his call. You're with him in a close proximity and relationship. You're sent out. You spread his gospel throughout the whole earth. You're both truly known and truly loved by him, the one who is love in and of himself. Today is the day you have that opportunity. You have that chance. If you are not a disciple right now, you can become one. You can love him and know him, just as he knows you and loves you. Christ is calling to himself those he desires. Won't you answer that call today? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. 
Thank you for calling to yourself those you desire. And thank you for including us in that number. We follow in a long line, a long heritage of people who have not lived up to that call, who have not lived up to those commands. And yet, yet you love us all the same. Yet you died for us all the same. Father, today let us follow you. Let us deny ourselves. Let us take up our cross. Let us be who we were called to be. Let us do as we were called to do. Rather than being like the crowds who do not know you, do not love you. They're like the demons who know you but do not love you. Let us be true disciples who both know you and love you with everything we've got, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Grant that to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
If you have questions today about how to be a disciple, about how to give your life to Christ, I'd love to answer them for you. I'd love to try to help you through that journey. I'll be down front and available if you'd like to talk to me after the service. As you go this morning, please hear this benediction from John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Go in peace. Thank you.